Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today's photo is of my friend Tyler up in the Mackenzie River area, which is, uh, which is up in the foothills of the Cascades uh, as you're going up toward the Three Sisters. And I liked this photo. This was taken back in 2014. I think this was, I think this was taken on my D2H on a digital camera, but I was working with film a lot during that day. And the cool thing about this image is what you can kind of notice at the, at the base of it as Tyler stands there in this marshy area of a field is that there's all of these, uh, these small kind of yellow bulbs that seem to be popping up through the photograph. They're really yellow flowers. They're sort of a variety of a, maybe a lily, but maybe it's a little bit more than that. It seems like it's, a, it's like kind of a prehistoric marshy pond plant, like, a, like I guess like a lily pad that's blooming. But it's really cool. I'd not really seen them before. I think we were there in uh, March of, what, 2014? Yeah, I think March of 2014. And it seems like these were plants that really only had a short period of growth uh, before, before they were gone. And I haven't seen them since, uh, you know, in the years since then, probably because we were fortunate just to be there right at the right time. But thanks for checking out this photograph from BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can see more by checking me out on Instagram at BillyNewman. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. Oh, yeah. There's been so many discoveries since the last time we were here. Gravitational waves have been verified. They've been projected before, but now they've been verified, I guess, I suppose. They say the math is strong. I'll let the scientific community vet that all. But, uh, but yeah, they say that they found, uh, what was it, like a 26 and a, or excuse me, I think it was a a 26 and a 34 solar mass black hole orbiting each other. Came closer and closer, kind of spiraling in on their same, like, point. And then they finally merge together when the two giant black holes, a solar mass, like we talked about before, is the size of our sun. So one sun around Earth is one solar mass. So these black holes were each 30 solar masses, so 30 times more massive than the mass of the sun. And these two black holes spiraled in at each other. And it's at this rate, I think, predicted in Einstein's theory of special relativity, where uh, it kind of it matches a pattern of how gravitational bodies will orbit around each other and then collide with each other. And so when these two bodies collided with each other, there was an, I think there was, if you think of E equals MC squared as energy equals mass times the velocity of light squared, then what that would mean is that when mass is accelerated to a certain point, it turns into energy. Um, That's what happened in this event. These 230 solar mass black holes collided with each other it released three solar masses that's three times the whole mass of our sun from mass into energy out into space and uh, i think this is one of like the largest or the most energetic events that we've been able to record in cosmology pretty big event (laughs) yeah well yeah or um not not in priority but in amount of energy that's exchanged at a single point that's verifiable 
And so that's, I think, what the type of thing that this, uh, this type of obser observatory was looking for was something to collect these gravitational waves. So it's a really cool story. They've kind of figured that out. Um, I think that was back in September that they made the observations. And then now in, what was it, early Feb or mid-February, that's when they kind of announced it. Probably won't make a lot of changes for any daily use, but it will change a lot of the astronomical well, I'd say like part of the study of astronomy going forward in the next 50 or 75 to 100 years, you know, is because now we can make uh, gravitational telescopes. We can make these tools that are able to observe gravity waves out in space. And this is just the first time that we've done it. This was an observation of one of the most st strong signals or strong events that we'd be able to gravitationally pick up. And so now from here, over the next several generations of this, this technology, they're going to be able to refine it so much more that they're going to be able to pick up much more subtle gravitational waves. And once they're able to do this, or once they're able to, let's say, now that it's proven, put this type of technology out into space and then make that expanse really vast, we're going to be able to refine details of these gravitational waves to a much smaller resolution. And that's going to give scientists and cosmologists and these new gravitational wave astronomers more tools to look into the universe and especially look into the early stages of the universe forming, which is going to be really exciting. I think this event that they observed was one and a half billion light years away. They say it's not triangulated, so they don't know exactly where in space this event took place, but they say that it would be out somewhere past the Magellanic cloud. If we were to kind of think about it in the sphere of the sky, that's in the Southern hemisphere. Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. And say, okay, the coolest thing. So it's kind of obtuse to sort of wrap your head around what it means, what are they observing, what is a gravitational wave. But this ripple from this event that happened one and a half billion years ago sent a wave in gravity through space time across the universe and it had adjusted the width of the Milky Way galaxy by the width of your thumb. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's strange. so in the room, there's in any kind of human perceptible distance, there's, there's no change. There's like an atom's width of change for us experiencing it here on Earth. That's why we didn't see any kind of crazy you know, thing happen. There's no kind right. of observable event, even with something that's probably one of the strongest events observable for us you know, out in outer space, these collisions of black holes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that wave, I think, stretched and then shrunk the galaxy by the width of a thumb. So that's like 100 light years across. Excuse me. <laughs> 100 light years. I think it's 100,000 light years across the Milky Way galaxy. And that kind of wiggled by an inch yeah, with so this gravitational wave. You're saying that it, it got a space in it that was the width of a thumb and then it got closer together? You know, it's really strange. It, it warped space-time. So... There was no, there's no physical space that changed, but that it's complicated. Yeah. That the, that the, that the fabric between the atoms had flexed outward, imperceivable right. to us as beings that don't have a capability of perceiving something like that, of the change in our space time. We're not able to really do that. We perceive, because since we're in it, we perceive time to be pretty constant. But if we were outside of that, we could see that the, the 
fabric of it, the size of it stretched out an inch and then came back together. So if we think of okay. the expanding universe, it's the expansion of space time that's traveling outward. So the physical distance between between proton and proton in an atom is 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 expanding outward and the size of those atoms are expanding outward. It's okay. just it's like space time is expanding. Right. It's it's just sort of all expanding together but in this situation just this wave came through like we think of a wave on a beach it rolled through and like when we were in the waves um in the ocean a few weeks ago we you'd kind of be in the wave it would move through but then it would go back to the status of the water before right. the wave right so the wave similarly came through it didn't displace anything or move anything permanently but it just just during the wave, that time that it was going through yes yeah, stretched it by some amount and then had it come back together. But that's the amount of distortion that was sent across um, from that gravitational wave. And gravitational waves, the reason that it's important to us is that it was the thing that was one of the last things to be identified, or how would that be? One of the last items in Einstein's theory of special relativity that was yet to be, un well, yet to be proven. So this mm -hmm. item of gravitational waves has really just been theoretical up until this point because it had not been there had been no technology developed to make that an observable phenomena, these gravitational waves. Right. And so it's really this huge feat of engineering that we're even at a place where we can do that now. Yeah, that's uh, really pretty incredible. Is it, uh, so now that they've officially, I guess, said that that's happened, they're gonna be working on telescopes now or newer telescopes that can detect that? Yeah, there's, so there's two locations right now. And these were all part of a scientific grant to look for a theoretical piece of science that no one believed even existed. Even Einstein, I think, kind of sort of tried to retract this idea uh, during his life okay. that, there is, that, that there was even the, the possibility of observing these gravitational waves. They were able to make this, uh, this system to do that. There's, it's a gravitational wave observatory. Really interesting stuff. I won't get into exactly how they do it, but it's a laser interferometer and it uses like a period of an amount of time to bounce a laser beam back and forth. And if a gravitational wave goes through there and stretches space time out, then the wave of light takes longer than the speed of light to go all the way down to the end and then back. And so they're measuring that amount of time, that period really, really accurately. And then when this happened, the wave came through, it stretched space time over that distance and then the wave didn't come back at the right time. That means that there was a measurable gravitational wave that passed through that space time that stretched that tube of the observatory. And that's what they recorded. They did this in two locations, all part of the same, uh, I don't know, observational. Um, well, there's two observatories. They both get recordings and then they match that data together so that they can do noise cancellation to drop out any of the disturbances that be localized to the earth. Okay. So if there's an earthquake in one, you could kind of measure that against whatever the other one would pick up and you could cancel that signal out. Okay. Yeah, it's cool stuff. So now that it's been proven, now that this really experimental thing that cost billions of dollars to get set up for the first time has now been proven, it's going to be this huge expansion into the scientific community uh, where they're going to be building out a lot more of these tools to do, um, to do gravitational wave observations that's really cool it's gonna be really exciting yeah i'm really glad that uh, that it came through 
we're going to see a huge expanse in the field of cosmology in our lifetime. Exactly. Now that this is something that's out there that people, yeah. well, that, that astronomers um, will be able to do research on. It's going to be interesting to find out, I guess, what kind of, what kind of new discoveries kind of come from this. Yeah. It'll that's take some time thinking. to vest, but it'll be really cool. Yeah. It'll be really neat to see what new things we're figuring out. Yeah. It'd be a lot of fun. And so what are the names of the observatories that proved this? Yeah. So like we, I think I mentioned that there are two observatories that were picking this up and they were doing noise cancellation against each other um, to, to try and refine the signal, which is, is part of how the technology works that they're using. And so the, the installation is called LIGO. It's the uh, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. It's an acronym. And there's two installation sites. Right now, they're both in America. I think they're going to expand soon out from that because there's going to be an advantage if there are, well, at least if there are more than two. Because right now, with two, they're not able to triangulate the position of a signal that they get. And so once they're able to triangulate things, that question that we had a few minutes ago when we were talking about where this event, this, um, this black hole collision took place in the universe, we'd be able to better pinpoint uh, that answer if we have three of them because we'll be able to triangulate that signal. So with the two of them, we're only able to tell right now that they're out in the Magellanic Cloud. So the two observatories that exist, um, one of them is in Washington State and one of them is in Arkansas uh, right now. It's cool. Okay. I think the best place for them to be would be off the Earth entirely. So same as like the Hubble telescope. When we started doing optical observations of space above us. We used a telescope here on Earth, but really ultimately the best, um, m highest resolution way that we can make observations of the universe was by putting that telescope outside the gravity well of the Earth and putting it out into space where there wouldn't be any disturbance from light pollution or atmosphere or vibration. And they could put this telescope up, make it perfectly still and have it take these really long exposures or long periods of light collecting to get these images or to get this resolution of data so that they can look out so deeply into space. Really cool how they're able to do that with optical telescopes. I think in our lifetime over the next 30, 40 years, if this seems like a promising field of science, we're going to see that expand out into, uh, into laser interferometer gravitational wave observatories that are put out into space as, uh, as like long satellites or satellites that communicate to each other and send a pulse back and forth or send a laser back and forth to each other and then try and pick up that same period of time as the technology and algorithms for this get a lot better. It'd be really cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be really neat. So I think right now, since they have proven that there are gravitational waves, there is now funding made available for a third uh, LIGO installment to, I think, be put into somewhere in the U.S., probably take another 10 years for that installation to go online. I'd bet um, we might see others like this come up from, from other um, educational institutions around the world. Like uh, we might see something from CERN or we might see something from, you know, just from some other installation that would want to build right. something like this now that it's a provable scientifically researchable uh, field of cosmology. Be really cool. It's going to be one of the most exciting things that happens for, uh, for this next century of, scientific discovery. I think this is probably one of the groundbreaking things that'll be part of learning about gravity, learning about um, that part of early universal history. Be interesting. Uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting. Yeah. 
You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's Patreon.com forward slash BillyNewmanPhoto. And I'm happy with the A7R so far. In fact, I've been looking at uh, trying to pick up a battery grip for it. You know, I did a wedding this weekend, which was great. Um, shooting a wedding, and, and those are those are really fun events to go through. And the A7R did a pretty good job in almost every capacity. I love the low light of it. The way the sensor works is really great. Super high quality. All of those things, they fit the mark for what for what I need. But it was interesting. I was noticing that in low light, the autofocus... For that camera, it really doesn't function in the way that I need it to, or I'm missing some stuff that I really want. And that's where I see the real benefit in, um, in some of the older systems. I mean, even like, con- like contrast-based autofocus systems that were in the Nikon or Canon systems for the last like 15 or 20 years are really superior to what I'm seeing in some of the expression of what the early... Uh, Sony autofocus stuff can do. You know, it's like in focus, right? You're looking at a frame, it's in focus. Your autofocus point is on the thing. It's a contrast point. There's plenty of light on it. You go to autofocus and then your lens just spins out and it does nothing for like four seconds. It just spins out to infinity. You see just blurriness. You lose the moment completely. It comes kind of back in. Maybe it finally grabs focus and then you take the picture, but you kind of miss everything, or you, you just, I don't know, like, there's a lot of times where you, you're, you're waiting for the camera to focus, but really should just be like, pull up to your eye, it sees focus, you hit it, grab it, click it, go. I'm having a harder time with that than what I thought I might, and I think some of that could be because of uh, the uh, the lack of the phase detection autofocus system that, like, the, the newer A7R... 2 has, or the A7 II, A7S II, A9, or, yeah, A9, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a Sony one. And, like, a lot of the new Canon cameras, they have this uh, phase detection system. It's supposed to be some better multiplexing system of finding autofocus, but there used to be systems that worked pretty good. Like, my D3 had 53 autofocus points, and it could pull up, I think, it, I don't know, something like that, but, it, you know, it had plenty of autofocus points, and it could grab your autofocus point. Even in pretty low light, it could kind of get, oh, that's at infinity, or, oh, that's pretty close to right next to me, so I'll stay there. And so it's interesting kind of learning how that behaves, but overall, the photos from the wedding came out really well. A lot of the stuff worked out very nicely. I've been really happy with it, but another thing that I noticed is with running with running a camera as a device, like more like an iPad or like well, more like your phone, you know, where it's got, it's got some screen on a lot of the time it's got processing stuff going on it's moving gigabytes and gigabytes of data to a card it's just drawing from the battery almost constantly i mean like during a wedding i guess to kind of think of power consumption like this i wrote 48 gigabytes of data to sd cards and so that's going to take some amount of battery energy you know stored energy to write all that data to a card and so in that capacity i kind of do get that it would take a good bit of power to to write that much information down, to capture it and then write that much information if you think about everything that it has to do. So in that way, and then run a screen and, you know, run the processing and run it visually and all that. 
Uh, so I kind of forgive it in a capacity. But what I noticed, though, is that I really did go through a couple batteries uh, shooting in just sort of a regular fashion at this wedding for, for most of the day. It was like a full day of shooting, but it, but it really was burning through those batteries pretty quickly. Like, you look at it, you're like, oh, whoa, I just, I just used like 10% in a pretty short amount of time. Um, and so with that, I was kind of thinking, and as it's been the plan for a long time for just, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, uh, best use case for professionalism, what I really want to do is get the battery grip that goes in accompaniment with the A7R. And the battery grip, I think, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like a Sony piece that fits, yeah, everybody's seen a battery grip before, but you know, the one where you can throw the two, the two camera batteries into the battery grip, you can get an extended amount of life from your camera that way. And you get like the, the portraits or what is it like the vertical shutter release, you know, so you can flip your camera up and shoot in portrait mode and, uh. Uh, yeah, I like the size of it, the look of it. Uh, it'll be an awesome kind of co- compact uh, professional. What is it? Not SLR. I keep wanting to say professional SLR, but an interlen- interchangeable lens camera. An interchangeable lens camera. That's rolling right off my tongue, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I want to go for the uh, for the battery grip, though, and I think that could kind of uh, solve some of the problems that I'm having with battery usage issues of the camera kind of coming up dead after after two or three hours or whatever it is so i don't know i've heard uh, i've heard of plenty of other people in relationship to wedding photography kind of complain or grouse a little bit about some of the features that are associated or some of the things that make the workflow of wedding work of a wedding shoot go by a little bit more difficultly with uh with a featured camera like the A7R. But I've heard of people that are really into it too, so you know, it seems like uh it seems like a couple different things. But low light autofocus, definitely an issue on that camera. I can definitely tell that uh that there's some stuff it doesn't do. Now, so with that and with the concept of like what I really like to shoot or you know, like kind of still moving things or the, the landscapes, low light, fine art stuff. If I try and get into that more, I wouldn't really run into that same kind of problem uh, with as much repetition because, you know, you're not shooting a high volume of frames. You're not shooting an event-based situation. Um, so it's kind of a different sort of scenario and you don't really seem to, you, you're, you're wanting to manual focus and take time and take multiple frames of the same thing in, uh, in some of those uh some of those more set up fine art situations or landscape situations. Like you're trying to take your time in those. Whereas in with event and wedding photography, that kind of process, it's just, it's really fast. You're trying to move different moving elements into different places and get photographs of them. And you're just doing a lot all at one time over a short amount of, of you know, length of the, the amount of time of the, you know, the event. So I don't know. It was all right. I did a great, uh, had a great time at the wedding, had a bunch of, or, you know, saw a bunch of people, had a bunch of food, got a bunch of great photos, brought them home, started processing them. That's a really interesting part of, you know, going through, like, a big batch of photos. And I've gotten kind of used to that over the time of getting through a big batch of photos. But it is always sort of overwhelming when you're like, wow, that's a lot. That's like a whole big data project I got to go through now. Like, I, <laughs> you don't realize, like, how much uh, it, was, it really takes to get through a bunch of stuff when you finish it. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts, all pretty cool. 
But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.